Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Happy Hour. I am your co-host, Jonah Paquette, and with me, as always... It's Supriya Gill. We are so pumped to have you here. Uh, can you tell I'm excited about this episode, Supriya? I can tell that you're excited. Some say I'm not that demonstrative, but you know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to be a little demonstrative for this one because we got a good one in store for you listeners today. Uh, our guest today is David Robson, and very, you know, very interesting guy, Supriya. Also a very... A, a guy of great decency, I thought. Uh, a good bloke, as they might say across the <laughs> pond. And, and as you'll see, that that David uh, is a Britishman. I um, knew you were going to have some <laughs> something to reference. That. Well, he's just a very polite, pleasant, uh, pleasant yet brilliant person, uh, as you all will hear uh, coming up. So and very so, humble. Very humble, yes. Which we like that on the happy hour, right? That the combo of people that are that are highly brilliant and accomplished, and you know, world renowned, and yet. Uh, not jerks, you might say, in the technical it's important. Term. That's an important, important yep. thing. Anyway, Supri, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about David and, and who he is and who we're going to be talking to in a bit? Absolutely. So David Robson is an award-winning science writer based in London, UK. His latest book, The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life, was a Financial Times Best Book of 2022 and won the British Psychological Society Book Award. His work was previously a features editor at New Scientist and a senior journalist at the BBC, and he writes regularly for The Guardian, The Observer, and The Psychologist. Pretty impressive. And that was a pretty humble bio, considering, as you'll all hear, um, multiple books we're talking about, multiple new, uh, a new book in the works even that, uh, that David gets into over the course of our conversation. And I thought a really impressive job that he did in the expectation effect of just pulling together all these different threads, these different sort of domains of our lives from our health to our you know, psychological health, our performance in different areas, not only athletic, but you know, occupational and otherwise, and really making it very tangible, relatable, and, and pretty concrete for readers. So yeah, what struck you most in terms of our conversation with David, other than his great accent? <laughs> That does make everything better. Um, I think, you know, what you just mentioned, I, I really appreciated how he went into all of these different domains and provided the science that backed all of this, as well as really specific examples. And you'll hear me asking about caffeine prior to exercise and, and managing that, which I think a lot of people can relate to. But his book and, and the way he describes concepts really are in a way that makes sense and that are consumable. So you can walk away with things to practice and things to think about for changes that you want to make in your life. And something I thought was so heartening about it is it's easy to think of this topic or this general concept from the outside on a very surface level and think of it almost as sounding like the secret, right? It's like the power of positive thinking and, oh, if I just expect good things to happen, good things will happen. And he really comes at it from a very robust and research-backed uh, it's really not the secret uh, for listeners. Uh, if any listeners out there love the secret, I was going to say, you know, more power to you, but the secret's no good, Supriya. That, that's my opinion <laughs> about that. We're, we're um, not pro-secret here on the happy hour. We are not. And I, I definitely think David would agree. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, we still love you if you're listening and you, and you like the secret, but but we're, we're not fans here on the happy hour. What we do love on the happy hour, of course, people like David and, and all of our other guests who Teach us how to live a happier, healthier life, uh, but do it in a way that 
we know really works and, and makes a big difference in our lives. So that's what we're going to get into. And Supriya, how are you doing otherwise? What's new in your life? Um, I am doing pretty well. Let's see what's new in my life. My, my Other than a car repair that you told me about having to get done, but, but we don't want to talk about un- no. unseemly things. No, flat tires are not fun, no. as I'm sure no. people can relate to, uh, but that's getting taken care of. Uh, yeah. So I don't know new- how to switch a flat tire, by the way. I'm just putting that out there to the world. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I'm not a very competent man when it comes to a lot of the stereotypical like things I feel like I should know how to do. I don't know how to do flat tires. I don't know how to change those out. So I should, if anyone out there has a good tutorial, send one my way. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't be that person for you. Um, <laughs> the car is definitely at the shop getting the tire replaced by someone that knows how to do that way better than I do. Um, but yes, other than the, the flat tire, just some fun trips coming up this month as, as summer's wrapping yeah, up. Some where to? Week- Weekend getaways, uh, San Diego coming up this upcoming weekend, and then another trip. San to Diego, Tahoe. I thought, is the pronunciation. Uh, yeah, I think you're right, actually. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Jenna? Any fun stuff coming up? Well, let's see. Well, I just uh, got back from my week of teaching out on Cape Cod, which was great. Um, lovely group of attendees, and got to do a lot of biking and beaching and all that stuff is beaching a word. I'm not sure, but either know, way, I like lobster rolls, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then I, I know my next speaking sort of tour will start up in a few weeks. So I'm in a couple of weeks where I'm a little closer to home, which is, which is nice, but yeah, I got to do some nice hikes and let's see what, what am I got? Oh, going to go see the killers in a couple of weeks live out in, uh, I think out towards Sac somewhere, actually. I can't remember exactly. Oh, where. That's, that's going to be exciting. And, yeah, a couple little weekend weekend getaways myself, but but nothing too exotic um, happening. And otherwise, you know, doing what we're all doing, working, trying to sleep, trying to watch some shows here and there. Just watched Hijack, which you recommended, I remember. And oh, that's so big good. fan. Was not expecting great from the reviews, but the reviews in this case were wrong. I thought the show was <laughs> that, a lot of fun. That happens. I'm glad that your happens. lived experience was different than the reviews. I'm going to listen to the lived experience. That's if we've learned anything. That's that's the most important thing. <laughs> All right. Well, Supriya laughs awkwardly across the other side. Okay, <laughs> I won't embarrass you anymore. Thank All you. Right. Well, we are um, going to turn it over in just a moment to our fabulous conversation with David Robson. So stay tuned right after the musical interlude. Enjoy that and enjoy our conversation with David coming right up after the break. Welcome to the happy hour, and we are so happy to be joined right now by David Robson. David, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for inviting me. So I have to uh, give a quick confession here. Well, We've been really excited to have you on, but a few weeks back, so when Supriya told me this great news that she had booked you for this for the show, for this episode, I was pumped, uh, of course, because she also told me, we've got David Robinson on the show. And I was like, well, that's an interesting person because David Robinson is this great <laughs> NBA basketball player here in the United States who you know, is in the Olympics and an NBA champion. I was like, doesn't really fit with our show, but I'm excited to talk to anybody, especially interesting people. And then it made a lot more sense when she told me that we were talking with you, which I'm equally thrilled about because your writing, your books, your work ties right into a lot of what we love to cover here in the happy hour, which is science-based skills and concepts and ideas to live a happier and healthier life. So big welcome to you 
here on the happy hour. Um, why don't we just sort of dive in? And you have a very interesting journey. You're clearly a bit of an underachiever, a mathematics degree from Cambridge, uh, written all over the place, written multiple books in a short span. Uh, what are you up to right now these days in terms of you know your main hats that you're that you're wearing? Mm, yeah, so at the moment I'm still writing for people like The Guardian, the BBC, New Scientist. I'm also writing my third book. Um, wow, already? Yep. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, that's coming out next year, actually. So this time next year in about June uh, wow. 2024. Okay, that's not all that yeah. fun. So we'll definitely have you share if you're comfortable the, uh, later, later later on about uh, about what you're working on there. That's Absolutely. awesome. Yeah, um, I would love a sneak peek. We're still, definitely. you know, thinking about your second book and want to talk to you about I that. I was still thinking about your third. first. Like, this is all in a very <laughs> rapid span. Of course, I was reading that Supriya. Uh, that we were talking the other day about *Man's Search for Meaning* by Viktor Frankl, who wrote the whole book in eight days. And I always say that oh, makes wow. me, as a writer, you know, as well, feel just terrible about myself. But maybe I need to shift my expectations and my mindset when it comes to to that. Uh, hey, David, before we dive into actual content today, Supriya always indulges me with one. I get one freebie, as I call it, which is one just totally random question that has nothing to do with concepts, that topics that we're going to talk about, but just I'm interested in about people. And it gets to you know vary between that. So I would love to hear from you. You're a writer. You're writing now your third book. Is there a particular book that you have read, not written, but read that actually resonates most in terms of changing your life, your thinking, and who you are as a person? Yeah, there is. I mean, there's quite a few, obviously. But I would say one that I keep on turning back to is um, Ethan Cross's book, Chatter, um, uh-huh. about kind of governing negative self-talk, which I think is, you know, related to some of the ideas in the expectation effect. But um, Mm -hmm. absolutely, you know, especially during the pandemic, um, I found that Ethan's work just really helped me to kind of cope with some of the stresses and to put things in perspective and to not get kind of bogged down in that rumination that can be so damaging to our mental health. Fantastic. And Ethan, by the way, very small world, Supriya. I don't know if Ethan would remember me, but when I was a senior in college, I was a research assistant, like one of those lowly lab assistants that does grunt work for 10 hours a week at the same lab that he was working as, at the time, a graduate student under uh, Walter Michel, who's a famous sort of social psychologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ethan was in that, you know, working as a higher up. And he would like sign off on my 10 hours a week of data entry and things like that. And then lo and behold, I look up a few years later and Ethan's doing amazing, like world changing stuff. So that's a great book, great person and and great answer. Thanks, David. (laughs) Well, and on that note, one of the things we really got interested in you because of what Jonah mentioned, but also your book, The Expectation Effect, how your mindset can transform your life. And, you know, Maybe we could just start there in terms of of you talking about what is the expectation effect and and also if you could speak to how this relates to specific beliefs rather than a general sense of optimism or pessimism. Yeah, I mean that is really crucial. Um, so the expectation effect is um, this phenomenon where our beliefs become self fulfilling prophecies, and it's through um, three main mechanisms that. Are very much kind of interconnected, and they are every changes to our perception, our behavior, and our physiology. Now, like you said, this is about specific beliefs. So it's not just about being a kind of really sunny person who's always trying to, you know, see the best in everything. And you know, the best example of this is in something like um, 
uh, in medicine with the placebo effect, which is mm-hmm. probably the best studied expectation effect. And that research really provided this foundation for all of the other stuff that I talk about. But, you know, with that, it really matters. It's not just about whether you're kind of hopeful. It really matters like what you expect a drug to achieve. So, for example, if you take a dummy pill and you believe that it's going to bring pain relief, well, that is what you experience. And we know that it's also producing physiological changes that can be measured that can explain why people are feeling that relief. It's not just imagined. It's actually changing your brain's chemistry. It's producing these endogenous opioids that actually reduce the amount of pain you're feeling at a physiological level. So that's one of the specific examples, but there are lots of others. You know, how you believe stress will affect your body and your mind can shape the way that it does, you know, very specifically. And what I think is important here is that, you know, you might have negative views of stress, but you might have positive views of aging, or you might have the view that you have um, unlimited willpower when it comes to, you know, going to the gym or resisting the cookie jar. But you might think that your willpower is very limited when it comes to controlling your anger or your frustration. Well, in each of those cases, those beliefs will become self-fulfilling prophecies. So we've got a real mosaic of different beliefs, each of which is having different outcomes. One of the things I found so persuasive, obviously, about your book is, you know, it's one thing to see this in terms of mindset and even behaviors, like what what do, what do our beliefs spur us to do? But you cite some really fascinating research, and I'm, and hopefully we'll get into them, you know, later on. Even in terms of like the, is it the uh, Kreb one gene? If I'm saying that right, in terms of right. um, you know even the you know physical exercise and, and endurance, as well as ghrelin, in terms of you know you writing about milkshakes, and that made me extremely hungry, among other things. But it was also really interesting. So even on a very deeply physiological level these expectations and, and mindset and the way that we look at things has a, a really powerful uh, impact on us, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And David, one of the things on that note that I, I really appreciated about your writing is, is you talking about your own experience in managing depression and how you came to learn about the nocebo effect. And, and can you talk a little bit about your experience and, and just kind of how that came to be as we're talking about physiological responses and and shifting that as well? Yeah, I mean, this was really, you know, it's what spawned the whole idea for me to actually write a book about this. As a science writer, you know, you have to be aware of the placebo effect. And like every science writer is going to write about it at one point in their career, I'm sure. But I was especially interested in this nocebo effect, which is the, the opposite of the placebo effect, where placebo means I shall please, nocebo is I shall harm. And it's really the evil twin. So if you expect to become ill or to experience some kind of symptom, um, it makes it more likely in lots of cases. Now, at the time, like you said, I was going through this period of depression. I'd uh, been prescribed some like very standard antidepressants, um, SSRIs. And my doctor was, you know, uh, compelled to tell me that one of the common side effects is having really bad headaches. And I did experience that for about the first seven days of taking these pills. Now, it was just a coincidence that, you know, I was writing this article on the nocebo effect at the time. So I kind of looked into the data and I found that actually headaches when taking these kinds of pills, I've, you know, that it's very common that that could be caused by the expectations rather than the direct effects of the drugs themselves. So in the clinical trials, you would find that even people taking the dummy pills would also experience those headaches. 
when they've been warned that that might be a potential side effect. And, you know, we also know that when you have those kinds of headaches, it's not just you imagining the pain, but actually you can see changes in the physiology of the brain, things like the vasculature that might be the source of the pain itself. And understanding this just opened my mind to the possibility that that pain was not inevitable. I felt that I could somehow release that and just, you know, to be more optimistic that the pain might go away. And, you know, just, it was not like I was telling myself this kind of mantra, but just kind of that recognition and realization actually did help the pain to vanish over the course of about 24 hours and it didn't return. And, you know, that's very powerful, I think, because, you know, the pain was causing me enough suffering that I might have decided to discontinue this treatment when actually it proved to be very effective at treating my depression. Um, and it just got me thinking about, you know, how else are our beliefs creating these self-fulfilling prophecies? And so that was when I started collecting, you know, any paper I could find on this. And actually, it took about six years before I felt like I had a file that was big enough and multifaceted enough to really make a book that would provide this kind of coherent narrative of this really important message that I wanted to convey. And did you have a sense, like, right away of what you wanted to say at that point? Like sometimes I, you're gathering all this information, I'm just visualizing it as a five, six year period. And then did the idea, was it already there and just kind of flew out, flowed out from you, I should say, at that point, did you find? Yeah, it was quite satisfying in that it just kind of crystallized like one day. And I just realized that actually the whole structure of the book fell into place very easily. There were kind of 10 different domains that I felt I could explore each one is a separate chapter with different conclusions, different implications for our lives. Yeah, it just, it was very fortuitous, but um, I think it was just a sign of how quickly that research was evolving and how, you know, just how much progress had been made over those years that suddenly it felt like there was this whole message I wanted to convey to, to a large audience. Yeah, and speaking of audience, I think listeners We'll sometimes hear terms like self-fulfilling prophecy and mindset, and, and it can, on, on the surface from afar, almost sound a little bit like law of attraction or the secret or you know these things that aren't so particularly robust. And, and one of the things I just absolutely adored about your book is almost every page that you're turning, it is chock full of research, not only in, in terms of that mindset, but the effect on all different parts of our life and all different domains of our life, um, physical, mental, emotional, and what we do. So. Absolutely. Well, and I'll add to that. It's research. Everything is research supported, but in a way that is engaging and in a, in a way that's digestible. So I think that the way that the information is presented flows really nicely with the concepts, because like Jen is saying, sometimes it can feel a little bit like over the top or esoteric. And that is absolutely not the case with your book. And I, I really appreciate how you talk about these behavioral science topics and, and ideas with the data supporting it while keeping me engaged and throwing in things like milkshakes and <laughs> other things. <laughs> Who doesn't um, love a milkshake? Right. <laughs> I think I want one now. <laughs> well, speaking of milkshake, I, I wonder, David, if you could share for listeners who haven't read your book, that was a really sort of interesting, and, and I think it applies on a much broader level, of course, in terms of the foods that we eat and who among us isn't looking at sort of how can we eat healthier and you know, achieve a better sort of quality of life based on the foods that we eat and nourish ourselves. And you cite a very fascinating sort of series of studies when it comes to um, even like labeling on, on milkshake. Maybe you could speak a little bit to, to what you found there. Yeah, sure. I mean, so there's quite a 
kind of large body of literature now looking at food labeling and how it shapes appetite. And we've kind of long known that actually it can shape this subjective sense of appetite. And the unfortunate thing is that when we see the word healthy, that can often trigger this sense that we're not getting something that's satisfying and tasty. There's this phenomenon known as the um, unhealthy equals tasty intuition that um, a lot of us carry. And so that means, you know, when you give uh, participants basically the same piece of chocolate, but you tell one of them, you tell half of the participants that it's a health treat and the other half that it's a kind of, uh, you tell half that it's a, a health snack um, and the other that it's a kind of a delicious treat, um, that the people who have the the healthy labelling don't just feel less satisfied and more hungry than the people who had the the kind of treat. They actually feel that it was, um, they feel more hungry than if they hadn't eaten anything at all. So, you know, it's really backfired completely. It's brought all of these associations of hunger and deprivation just from that word hungry. Um, now, what the milkshake study showed was that actually this isn't just subjective, but it's also something that can be seen in our hormonal response to food. And so much like the kind of chocolate study, they gave people exactly the same milkshakes to drink on two separate occasions. But in one case, it was labelled as this kind of it really insipid health shake uh, that had just 200 calories, but was very sensible. Like sensible was the word the the labelling used, which isn't necessarily so that appealing. Right. <laughs> the other one was like luxurious, decadent, delicious. The labelling emphasised how much ice cream had gone into the shake. Um, and all, all the while, um, so before, during and after the participants were drinking the milkshake, they measured levels of the hormone ghrelin, which stimulates appetite. Now, normally, if you have a satisfying meal, ghrelin might peak just before you've eaten because you feel really hungry and it's kind of telling you like, you know, eat that food, like you want to make the most of this. And then the ghrelin drops very dramatically because once you've eaten something substantial, you don't need to go hunting for more food, you can rest. And that's exactly what happened when people saw the milkshake that was labelled as this decadent, luxurious treat. But when people saw the milkshake that was labelled as this kind of sensible health shake, the ghrelin levels just barely changed at all. And, you know, that's the worst thing that can happen if you're on a diet is that you consume mm-hmm. loads of calories, but you believe because it's healthy that um, it's not going to be satisfying. So you still feel really hungry later on. And then you, you know, start snacking later in the evening. Ghrelin is also involved in metabolism. We don't know, you know, exactly how, but animal studies certainly suggest that when you have higher ghrelin levels, that that can actually slow your metabolism because you're trying to preserve energy. And again, that's like the total opposite of what you want to happen if you're on a diet. You want to be burning as much energy as you can. Um, I just found that very profound. And I think mm-hmm. like what it really said to me was just this fact that when we're dieting, like we shouldn't just be focusing on cutting calories to create this kind of sense of deprivation, but we really still need to be focusing on the pleasure and satisfaction of what we're eating. So actually, you know, we might cut calories, but that's not the only thing we're considering. We're also looking for delicious flavors, textures, a sense of celebration with everything that we eat. Which is really not emphasized in, in many of those foods that we would think of as healthy. And, right. you know, I'm, I'm guessing that no matter what our expectation is, I couldn't convince myself that this piece of kale that I'm having for lunch <laughs> is as good as that ice cream. And yet, 
to some degree, perhaps focusing on what's nourishing, what's satiating, as opposed to just looking at that sort of low calorie, et cetera, uh, sensible. Uh, I love that word. Big implications. So I found that a really fascinating part of the book for sure. Yeah. And I think too, David, at the end of each of each of the chapters and on the different topics, you provide some take-home points and, and tips. And so for this, you talk about some ways to kind of savor food and, and other ways in which to connect to food in a different way to manage expectations. Can you speak a little bit to that? Mm, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are loads of ways I think that we can connect better to the food we're eating. I mean, I think like Jonah just spoke about, you know, how kale is not going to feel like ice cream. Um, and it would be ridiculous if we try to fool ourselves into thinking that. Like that's never that is never gonna happen. So that's not that's not really um a productive um way to proceed. But I do think like, you know, there are gonna be hopefully some vegetables that we do find really satisfying. And then we can kind of spice them up in a way that just enhances that. So you know I find that even like you know, small kind of ingredients that are like real flavor enhancers. So things like having anchovies or chili or, you know, sprinkling a bit of butter over the the broccoli that might just make it feel a bit more like a treat, even if it's, you know, like even uh, even if it still is lower calories than what you would have eaten before. Just like turning that food into just small changes that can turn the food into something that you can appreciate a little bit more. Um, for me, uh, definitely helps work. I think also, like you said, just like really considering, like thinking more carefully about the good it's doing. It's not just about cutting the calories, but you're also mm-hmm. thinking about all those other nutrients that it's providing. Yeah, that's the way I would go about it. And also just having that real anticipation before meal, like really looking forward to it. You know, even if if you're having, this is a crazy result, but if you're having something like a piece of chocolate cake, and you think beforehand about how delicious that cake is going to be, like you imagine like the flavor, you know, how it kind of melts in your mouth. You'd think that might encourage you to eat a bigger slice of cake, but actually the research shows the opposite happens. We actually are then content with a smaller portion because we've kind of primed the brain to realize that we don't need to eat until we make ourselves feel sick to have that satisfaction that actually just a small you know, bite of something can give us the pleasure that we want. So yeah, those are the things that I try to do, you know, all the time when I'm eating, it's just being a bit more mindful about what I'm consuming and making sure that I do always look for pleasure and appreciate the pleasure when it comes my way. I wish we'd had this conversation yesterday before I had two two slices of cake last night <laughs> uh, because I did not get that memo, uh, unfortunately, David. They were very good, but I it, I felt a little bit sick afterwards. I can't lie. Well, and David, one of the things you're talking about priming, I think, is is a really important part of, of just managing expectations. And you talk about this with exercise as well. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk. One of the studies you talk about was really interesting because I... I am someone that has a caffeine drink before I exercise and um, have an expectation of what that that caffeine will do. So I'm curious if you can just talk a little bit about the series of studies that you describe in priming and expectations around exercise. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, caffeine is a great example because, you know, we We've been told that caffeine can kind of help our workouts, that can be a kind of muscle stimulant that can Mm -hmm. help us to lift heavier weights. But what researchers did was they kind of gave people decaf espresso 
told them to lift some weights and then compared that to when they hadn't had the decaf and also when they'd had a real caffeinated espresso too. And what they found was that the expectations of the caffeine content were more important than the caffeine content itself. So, you know, having the decaf, but thinking that it was kind of giving you that boost was far more effective than having um, real caffeine, but being told that it was decaffeinated. So, I mean, that is, you know, and that's true of lots of um, sports supplements, even some prohibited substances that athletes use. It turns out that placebos (laughs) can be more effective at boosting performance than the the banned substances themselves. Um, So, yeah, expectation is so important in sports performance. I had that uh, recently having what I thought was a like espresso after a dinner recently, and I never drink caffeine because it keeps me up. And I felt myself getting very revved up in the evening and then worried that I was going to be staying up all night. I could feel my heart rate going up. And then the uh, waitress came over and said, I'm so sorry that we actually accidentally mixed it up and it was a, a decaf. Would you like the regular one? I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> but I, yeah. you know, based on my, what I thought I was having, it totally, totally flipped it. So yeah, really fascinating stuff. I'm, I'm wondering too, you know, I think, and this has broad implications, but I think you, you write about it specifically in terms of expectations around like performance with athletics. And you wrote that mm-hmm. fascinating uh, part about, you know, genetic predispositions and sort of being people being informed, either truthfully or not, based on sort of their abilities, for lack of a better word, when it comes to like their ability to do uh, physical exercise and specific around that, uh, that gene that you write about. And I'm wondering, you know, I, my mind goes to a lot of places with sort of what that could mean in terms of we all have these stories, we tell ourselves of, oh, I'm just not good at this, or I don't have good genes for this, or I'm not good at math, or I'm not, and like those expectations can go in so many places. But you wrote really a fascinating piece around that one for exercise that I wonder if you could speak to to, to as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, I do think this is a good study in that, you know, it has broad implications and actually other research supports it in lots of different domains so it's not just exercise mm-hmm. we would find the same thing in education but yeah, yeah with mm-hmm. um with sport you know like these researchers at stanford brought uh, participants into the lab for a genetic test um it was a real test like the results were valid um for whether they had the kind of good or bad and i say that with inverted commas version of the creb1 gene uh, so we do know that this gene does uh, the version that you have can have a, a slight but meaningful effect on your um, kind of uh, sporting prowess. So uh, your overall stamina, also kind of how hot your body gets when you're exercising, how comfortable you find it. You know, all of these things can be influenced by the gene. Um, but the researchers gave the participants sham feedback on the gene. So some people might have had the good version, but were told they had the bad version and vice versa. And what they found was that those expectations were independently very important in determining not just their stamina on a treadmill, but, you know, some physiological changes too. So like the gas exchange within the lungs were determined Mm -hmm. by um, those expectations. And in that particular case of the gas exchange in the lungs, the expectations proved to be more important than the gene itself. Now, like you say, you know, I think this does have implications for genetic testing, because it's still an imperfect science, you know, if we focus on just one particular gene and we base our whole kind of identity around that gene, whether we think we're sporty or not just from mm-hmm. the CRIB1 gene, I think that could be very misleading, you know, creating a needlessly negative expectation, say, when there, there 
isn't um, there isn't biological grounds for that expectation. But I think you know, putting genetic testing aside, I think we've all got these narratives about you know how good we are at, at sport or exercise just from say our experiences of gym class at school. Mm-hmm. You know, I certainly felt because I was the youngest in my year that I just wasn't really. I was always going to be slower than the other kids, basically, because I was mm. just a bit younger, a bit smaller. But you know, as an adult, that is irrelevant now. And mm. the truth is that you know I will benefit from exercising, and the more I do, the better I'll get. Like that. That's just a scientific fact. And actually, just like trying to question that previous narrative and just trying to focus on my personal trajectory without all of that baggage attached. You know, that's the kind of reframing we can all do that can make the experience of exercising more pleasurable, more productive, and ultimately help make it easier for us to build that exercising habit if we do find our visits to the gym more rewarding. Yeah, I almost think of it maybe more as like a band of possibilities where, you know, no matter how much I train, I'm probably not going to be an Olympic long distance runner. I'm probably not going to play center for the New York Knicks in basketball. I'm probably not going to win a Nobel Prize for mathematics. And yet I can either be at the lower or upper end of those bands of possibilities based on many things, but but largely based on sort of my that narrative I have of myself, my mindset, and what that leads me to do, both, you know, in terms of behavior as well as physiology. On that note, David, I'm wondering on the other side, because we've talked about so many of these incredible positive benefits that can come to our health and our sort of all, all these different areas of our life. I worry a little bit that listeners might sort of who who are going through struggles right now, who are going through setbacks, who maybe are in pain. Is there a risk that we sometimes flip that the other way and almost get into a place of self-blame where we feel like, well, I must not be doing this well enough, or I must just not have the right mindset. And that's why I'm struggling. And do you have any thoughts about sort of that or how you might speak to that? Yeah. I mean, I was really conscious of this possibility while I was writing the book. And like, absolutely, I don't think the mindset research should be another reason for us to beat ourselves up and to mm-hmm. another kind of point of comparison uh, from which we can kind of draw this conclusion that we're somehow failing. You know, the fact is that expectation is one important ingredient for all of these different domains in our lives, but it's certainly not the only thing that matters. You know, you do still have to kind of put in the work. So if you're trying to get fit, you know, your genes were also going to play a part. Your socioeconomic circumstances were also going to play a role too. You know, what food you can afford, what stresses you're facing at work, how often you can go to the gym. You know, that's just with sport. If we look at things like education or workplace success, you know, there are other structural factors that we have to consider. So, you know, we shouldn't, I think changing our mindset can certainly help us to deal with the challenges that we're facing in the, you know, best way possible. Mm. But that doesn't mean that we can overcome every barrier simply through cultivating a better mindset. I think we also have to be honest about all of those other, you know, barriers that are imposed on us. And as a society, we should be looking to kind of take those barriers down. Um, Yeah, that's how I see it. Yeah. And, and I'll say that, you know, I, I'm a, as a psychologist, I practice CBT and that's, that's, you know, my cognitive behavioral therapy is, is where my work is based from. And I think one of the important pieces of this is that we're, we're talking about reframing 
and reappraisal and, and helping to have more realistic thinking. So that's not just positively thinking all of these bad things away. It's setting ourselves up for the most success in the face of these stressors, in the face of these barriers that, that might be coming up. So, and I think that yeah. you, you do a really nice job of tying that all back in together. And, and I think, you know, to Jonah's point, the importance of not just avoiding these these feelings that might be coming up or, or engaging in emotional numbing or avoidance. It's really just in in these situations where we might not be thinking in the most realistic way, how can we, if we can, experience a mind, mindset shift and what might we do to put that into place for ourselves? Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad you used the word realistic because that is how I, you know, that's really where I see as trying to kind of, it's like the kind of a, uh, the middle ground that we should be looking for. You know, I think uh, lots of us often go, you know, way too far down the kind of line of pessimism because um, it, it can feel a bit protective, actually. If you're, you're thinking mm-hmm. the worst, then you can't be disappointed. Uh, and then you have the positive thinking literature, things like The Secret, that are telling you to just, like, visualise your way to success. Um, always kind of just imagine, you know, goals that probably just aren't within your reach. You know, like you were saying about you know, it's like the average person is not going to become an Olympic athlete, certainly not just through uh, You're killing my changing dreams, my mindset. Is it bad yeah. to say? I'm not going to do my You're exercise today. My <laughs> right. But, but we can, you know, we can try to move those expectations to that kind of middle ground where we, you know, accept possibilities that say our abilities might be better than we believe. They might not be as bad as we have believed in the past. And we can, you know, hold that uncertainty and just accept and that we we can try our best and kind of see what comes out of that. And I think that's where you're going to avoid those negative expectation effects and where you open the way for the positive expectation effects. But say we're exercised, but I think this applies to all domains. If I went to the gym and I was like, really set that bar so high, it's like today, just through the power of my expectation, I'm going to like you know, be Usain Bolt's world record or, you know, something like in, like insane like that, that's only going to produce disappointment. And I actually think then that's going to be far more counterproductive then yeah, sure. to kind of be trying to expect, expect something to happen that isn't biologically possible. It's only going to, like, damage your mood, damage your motivation, and also lead you to question then the whole premise of the expectation effect. And But the problem is you're just kind of practicing it in a way that doesn't fit what the science has told us, which is that we should be reframing, using reappraisal, looking for that kind of open-minded attitude rather than, mm-hmm. you know, just manifesting whatever we want to happen. It's an important reminder. We're not trying to channel our inner Pollyanna or uh, (laughs) Pangloss from Candide. I'm thinking way back to philosophy. Um, So that power of realistic thinking, very important. And and listeners of the happy hour know that we are not proponents of the secret. Is that right, Superior? (laughs) Yes, we are are absolutely not. (laughs) I'm wondering if we have just a little bit more time, if we could shift gears and hear a little bit for listeners that are curious about your 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 first book, The Intelligence Trap, which if you've gone on Twitter recently, you've probably seen a lot of evidence of the intelligence trap of smart people doing dumb things, saying dumb things. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm partially jesting, but maybe you could share a little bit, David, of kind of what inspired you to write that book and some of the main premises that premises that you uh, that you discovered in that process. Yeah, I mean, so that 
came from like my experience as a science writer, you know, really um, coming across some of these like great minds, you know, people who had won like Nobel Prizes, uh, but then showed like strange beliefs in other areas of their life that I just couldn't reconcile with their kind of academic work. You know, the kind of most infamous example would be Kerry Mullis. Um, he won the uh, Nobel Prize for discovering um, the polymerase chain reaction, which is used in so much of genetic testing. It was behind the PCR test mm. for COVID, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, fundamental to lots of medicine and, you know, fundamental biological research too. So like groundbreaking stuff. But he also believed, you know, in kind of uh, like pseudoscientific ideas like the astral plane, astrology, that kind of stuff. And more troublingly, he denied that HIV caused AIDS. So he was this kind of um, HIV denier, a climate change denier. He denied that ozone levels were creating a hole, um, that CFCs were creating the hole in the ozone layer. You know, all of these contrarian beliefs um, that he really was committed to, despite the damage it was doing to his reputation. Um and so I just wondered, like, what is going on there? Like, how does that fit with our traditional view of intelligence as this kind of general um, brain processing power that should be fueling more rational, more logical thinking? Um, and what I discovered really is that, like, IQ, general intelligence, you know, with those tests, we're measuring, I guess, we are measuring that kind of raw processing power that's a bit like a car's engine. You know, if you have a faster engine, that can be helpful for you to kind of drive on a very straight road very quickly. Uh, but to, you know, successfully use a car, you actually need all of these other instruments, good steering, GPS, brakes, suspension. And similarly, to apply our intelligence correctly and to avoid us like driving off that proverbial cliff like Kerry Mullis, we really need to have all of these other traits and abilities that haven't been so well appreciated and cultivated in traditional education. So things like intellectual humility should mm-hmm. be rewarded, curiosity, active open-mindedness, where you're deliberately looking for information that might contradict your points of views. You know, all of these things um, turn out to be so important for making wiser decisions. Yeah, it seems to me that um, in this age where everyone has not only opinion about everything, but the ability to broadcast that opinion, you're seeing a lot more evidence of these sort of the fact that people who are even incredibly accomplished in one domain of life, for example, are no less prone to many of the same cognitive biases, blind spots, and and so on that that the average person is, and in some cases, maybe more blind to those due to sort of a sense of overconfidence and belief that you know they have great expertise over here so it must translate to great expertise over there i'm reminded but at the full disclosure i wouldn't i'm not a fan of this person's uh, work overall but it's a great quote from the philosopher uh, and the writer william buckley who said uh, i'd rather be governed by the first 2000 random names in the phone book than the harvard faculty <laughs> and it was the idea of like you know these these people who have great expertise in their narrow field really does not translate to this these broader domains in that way so really fascinating yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, and I think like, you know, the research really bears that out. There's this phenomenon called earned dogmatism, for example, where, you know, the kind of more you achieve in your particular domain, you believe you've kind of got the bragging rights, I guess, to just close your mind to all other points of view. But every domain is kind of constantly changing. You need to update your knowledge, you know, 
every day to kind of form rational beliefs. But with earned dogmatism, you stop doing that. So it can actually mean that the more expertise you have in a particular area, you know, after a certain point, the less uh, rational um, and wise and open-minded your decision-making becomes. Certainly, I've seen a lot of that these last few years. Right. Well, it's so interesting. And to your point, we're, we're getting to get glimpses of this more and more now with things like Twitter and, and other accounts where people can share their own opinions without them being vetted by the, by the people around them. So I think that's such a good point. Mm-hmm. And actually, David, what I thought Jonah was going to bring up at the beginning of this was uh, how we had to reschedule because <laughs> a few weeks ago when Jonah uh, came back from his trip with the bears with COVID. Um, and one of the things that we saw was that you during COVID did a lot of really interesting and cool work in the in the time when there was a lot of misinformation and actually got some recognition around the work that you did during COVID. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing? Yeah, sure. I mean, so, you know, I was most interested in our psychological responses to the pandemic, and especially, I think, you know, within the first few weeks, it became really clear that misinformation was spreading rapidly. Um, And also that, you know, you could see long before the vaccines were developed, that there was going to be this kind of backlash against them. You know, in my opinion, there was a backlash against all measures that governments were taking Mm -hmm. to reduce the spread of the virus. So I was, you know, looking into the psychology of why that could be. And, you know, just to give a couple of examples of the pieces that I wrote, one looked at the exponential growth bias, which is, I hope we're all familiar now with the fact that the contagion was growing exponentially, you know, it was doubling at a certain rate every, you know, few days. And so that means that the numbers can start off very low, but get very high very quickly. But thanks to the exponential growth bias, even if you have quite a high level of mathematical ability, people still really struggle to take this on board and to recognize that. And so that was shaping people's personal decisions about how they were, you know, taking responsibility for their actions, you know, whether they were going to wear masks, whether they were washing their hands, whether they were isolating. Um, But I think also we saw it in government decisions. So in the UK, for example, um, the government did it not just once, but I think twice or maybe three times. They believed that to protect the economy, they had to keep like shops open for as long as possible before the levels of the virus reached a certain point. But the because of the exponential growth, that meant that the subsequent lockdown was going to have to be so much longer mm. because the um, curve had already reached a certain point and was going to continue growing once the lockdowns had started. And then it was going to be much harder to pull it down from that level. Um, if they'd acknowledged the exponential growth fully, they could have maybe had much shorter lockdowns, which would have been better for the economy overall. Um, So that was just one example. The other was looking at um, the way that misinformation spreads much like the virus itself. It's, you know, a contagious thing that people spread from person to person and how we can use this uh, kind of concept of a cognitive vaccine to protect people Mm. from misinformation. So actually explaining to people the methods of misinformation, kind of showing them how different pieces of information in the past have been communicated that provides this kind of immunity that makes them less susceptible to misinformation in the future. So I found that very interesting. And actually, it was 
you know, there were big programs rolled out during the pandemic that do seem to have had um, a reasonable impact on uh, millions of people and just helping them to be a bit more canny to uh, to kind of what they're reading and a bit more sceptical sometimes in the claims that they might see on their Facebook page or their Twitter feed. You mean everything I see on Twitter is not 100% accurate in all cases? That's interesting. It's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> That's all very fascinating. I mean, I actually am I'm wishing we had many hours to talk because I feel like there's so much ground that we could cover. Do you, you mentioned at the outset, and then we have a couple of quick uh, lightning round questions that we'd like to ask you as well before we wrap up, but um, you broke the news here on the happy hour. First time you've ever <laughs> said it publicly that you're working on your third book. Now, just, I'm sure you've mentioned it before, uh, but, but tell us a little bit about what you are, uh, you've gotten into such interesting ground your first two. What are you covering uh, in, in the next one? Yeah, uh, so the next one is all about social connection. And um, so it's partly about the benefits of social connection for our health, which actually works often through similar mechanisms to the expectation effect through this kind of mind-body connection. Um, But that's just the first chapter. And then the remaining 11 chapters are really exploring, you know, why do we find it difficult to connect as much as we would like? Like most of us, you know, don't have as many friends or, you know, even acquaintances as we would find optimal. So what are the psychological causes for that? And then how can we overcome those barriers? And much like the expectation effect, I found that it's often um, due to these kind of erroneous beliefs that we have. We're often Mm -hmm. overly conservative, cautious, pessimistic about our social potential. And actually just recognizing that fact, learning about this research can just make us feel a lot more confident and just help us to kind of get the social connection that we crave. Well, we certainly know we'd want to have you on the show again to talk about that because yeah, as be psychologists, this is what we see all the time. Um, Such an important topic, yeah, especially with what's happening in the world right now. And and you also talk a little bit about this in your book. And, and one of the studies that you mentioned is pretty fascinating. Um, the There's a study that you describe around eye movements and tracking social success mm. being tied to that and tracking eye movements. If you could quickly mention um, or talk about that study in the book. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this, I hadn't actually made that connection to my new book, but yeah, you're totally <laughs> right. If we feel negative or we have these kinds of expectations of hostility, uh, we start to see that in our environment. So, you know, you might have a crowd of faces on the subway only a couple of them might be looking kind of a little bit unfriendly or hostile. But if you carry that expectation that people are going to be angry with you, your eyes are going to automatically go to those people and you're going to remember them mm. and you're then going to carry that through for the rest of the day, you know, feeling yeah. that like uh, the world is a scarier place than it needs to be. Um, and I actually found, you know, it's one of these things, again, where just being um, aware of that expectation effect was very liberating because, mm-hmm. you know, when I noticed that happening, I just deliberately look around and consciously try to find the faces of people who are smiling. And actually, mm-hmm. they were there all along. I just wasn't seeing them. I was blind to them because of my expectations. It's so funny you mentioned that is uh, when I do quite a bit of public speaking myself uh, real quick, and I used to get very anxious uh, and one of the things I would do would be very hyper attuned to any sort of signs in the audience of people that were not impressed or, you know, <laughs> you name it. And it wasn't until I really sort of flipped that 
it wasn't breathing. It wasn't exposure so much. I mean, those things helped, but it was actually focusing more on, is there one thing I can convey that would help one person in that audience? And when I sort of shifted that audience, I started to look much more for the signs of that, for the cues of connection, for the cues of reaching somebody in that way. And it is amazing just how much as social beings, right, have evolved over mm -hmm. tens of thousands of years for that thirst, that basic human need for connection. I'm, I think it ties into so many things. So I'm already pumped for your book, David. That sounds awesome. <laughs> That's very nice to hear. Same. <laughs> okay. So we're going to just shift to our lightning round and um, I'll start. So David, what's one change that you would encourage listeners to make based on your work and, and what we've talked about today? Um, so I think um, this goes back to this idea of, you know, where's our personal responsibility? And it would actually be first thing that we can do before we try to apply the expectation effect is just to practice self-compassion. There's a, a, you know, huge body of research showing that, you know, we believe that self-criticism is going to make us better, that actually we can be, we think if we're our own harshest critic, then that's the road to improvement. But the research shows that's not the case, actually. If you're kinder to yourself, more forgiving of your mistakes, you're more motivated to improve in the future. You have more resources to improve in the future because you're not so stressed. Um, you know, kindness is the way to go. So yeah, just don't be so hard on yourself would be the one thing that I'd say people should take away from this. Love that. Love Thank that. Thank you. You've talked about some really exciting stuff that you're working on professionally. Uh, I'm curious if there's anything personally that you are most looking forward to right now, whether it's a trip or something that you're doing that's coming right up, anything on a personal level that you're pumped about right now, David? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm going to be spending September in Valencia in Spain. So I'll be kind of working there, like r finishing my book there, but I'm just really excited to be speaking a bit of Spanish, to be having the amazing food. Um, it's a beautiful city you know, right by the sea. So uh, there's a lot for me to enjoy there. Awesome. Sounds like it. <laughs> take, take us with you. <laughs> Do you have room for two more? <laughs> um, and of course, on the happy hour, we would love to hear about how you cultivate happiness and well-being in your daily life. Mm, yeah, that's something that, you know, I, I feel like I have had to learn that, you know, like I said, I'd had like this period of depression in the past and I think I'd previously been quite melancholy, but like I really do feel like having written The Expectation Effect, I've never been happier. Um, so, you know, applying what I'd learned from that book was important. I think having like a kind of routine has really helped me and that includes like working out every day, you know, uh, I think the research backs this up, actually, that even just building a little bit of core strength is actually very beneficial for reducing anxiety. Um, and I've certainly found that that helped. You know, little things like um, having like a nice espresso before um, I start work in the afternoon, you know, that kind of ritual, I think, can also be very helpful just to kind of get us in the zone. And yeah, uh, just being very mindful of what's good for me and practicing that has, you know, that's my recipe for happiness at the moment, I guess. Awesome. Well, we've loved talking with you today about the expectation effect, about the intelligence trap and all the amazing work that you're doing. Uh, we're happy to put, we're actually, of course, going to put this in the show notes, but why don't you tell listeners where they can follow you, where they can learn more about your work, keep tabs on, on all the amazing stuff that you're up to. Cool. Uh, so my website is davidrobson.me. So that's where I'll be putting, you know, uh, updates on my new book and there's reviews of my 
previous books. Um, I'm on Twitter, or um, should we say X? Ah, uh, yes. As it's now called. <laughs> good, good call. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. I saw yeah. that. <laughs> uh, so I'm D underscore A underscore Robson, and I'll probably be there until it actually reaches its apocalypse. Um, but also I'm on um, Instagram off. and Fred's, and I'm David A. Robson on those uh, those networks. So yeah, do come. What, what do you call there. a tweet now? By the way, what's the what's the new verb? Come <laughs> I have up no with idea. X? Who knows? I, I guess know. we'll find out. <laughs> I don't think my it pro. <laughs> Well, such a pleasure to have you here, David, with us. We really appreciate you taking the time, going over time, of course, but we felt like we could have gone all day with you. So thanks so much. Thank you, David. Uh, yeah, it really is my pleasure. Thanks so much.